In October, we began a sermon series going through the book of Galatians, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. At the beginning of January, we made it to Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 26, and in that passage, we read about the fruit of the Spirit. After Alan preached that text, we paused our sermon series going through Galatians in order to do a nine-part series on the fruit of the Spirit. And today we are finishing our Fruit of the Spirit series, which means next week we will pick back up in Galatians chapter 6 with two more sermons to finish that sermon series. Our aim, our goal, our desire with the Fruit of the Spirit sermon series has been to see our love for one another as well as the pieces of the Fruit of the Spirit flourish in the context of the Restoration Road Church family. I believe that as we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, the wonderful fruit of the Spirit will be increasingly evident in our lives together. Well, the book of Nehemiah opens with Nehemiah receiving a report from Jerusalem while he was in the city of Susa, which was one of the royal seats of Persia. The year was probably 445 B.C., and the Persian Empire was vast. In 539 B.C., the Persians under Cyrus the Great defeated the Babylonians and absorbed the lands of Israel and Judah. A year later, he allowed some of the Jews to return home to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Over the following years, several waves of Jews returned and resettled in Judea. However, when Nehemiah received the report... Regarding his fellow Jews in the city of Jerusalem, things were not well. In Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, we read the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the, months of, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The report he received in verse 3 was likely a succinct summary of the most important points. The remnant was in great trouble and shame. What was the explanation provided? The wall was broken down and the gates were destroyed by fire. This news was devastating. The report was so bad that Nehemiah wept and mourned for days. Why was the news of the broken down wall so devastating? In the ancient world, the wall around a city was its primary line of defense. Bruce Waltke writes, The decisive characteristic of a city is its protective wall. If the enemy raises it to the ground, the city is left defenseless and open to all sorts of villainy. Now, why do I bring this up? 
for our final sermon in our Fruit of the Spirit sermon series. The reason I'm calling attention to the story of Nehemiah is because we have come to the ninth and final piece of the Fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control. The book of Proverbs uses powerful imagery to call attention to the weight of the problem of lacking self-control. In Proverbs 25, 28, we read, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Through this verse, the Lord impresses on us that a lack of self-control is disastrous. Nehemiah was devastated by the news of the broken down walls. The reason he was devastated, the reason he wept and mourned for days is because a city without walls is brought to ruin. And as a city without walls is brought to ruin, so too is a man without self-control. Do you feel the weight of this problem? In Proverbs 16, 32, we also see the value of self-control. We see the value of self-control spoken of in a positive way. In Proverbs 16, 32, we read, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. The world values power and strength and might, but God values self-control. So we see in these verses both the seriousness of the problem of lacking self-control as well as the positive value of practicing self-control. Well, as I said, we are finishing our sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. And for the final sermon in our series, I'm going to read Galatians 5, 16 to 24 to help us remember the context where we read about the fruit of the Spirit. And I think the context provided in these verses is particularly relevant for our topic this morning. Galatians 5, 16 to 24. But I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 
In these verses, we see the contrast between walking by the Spirit on the one hand and gratifying the desires of the flesh on the other hand. Walking by the Spirit means that we have received the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ, and we walk according to the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit who is in us, doing what is good and right and pleasing in the eyes of the Lord. Gratifying the desires of the flesh is indulging sin, giving in to temptation, doing that which is contrary to the will of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, what do we need? What do we need the Lord to give us if we are going to walk by the Spirit rather than indulge our sinful desires? I think we can all agree that one obvious answer is self-control. The Greek word in Galatians 5 that is translated self-control is defined as to exercise complete control over one's desires and actions. I wonder how many of us would say that we exercise complete control over our actions and desires. I was tempted to ask for a show of hands just to see whose hand would just shoot up you know, before they could even control it. I feel like anyone raising their hand, I'll just be in an immediate indictment. Like, not you. But I refrained. Self-control. <laughs> if there is a topic that can quickly bring conviction to everyone, I think it might be the topic of self-control. Who among us thinks that we have mastered self-control? Who among us can look at every area of our life and say, every area of my life is characterized by self-control? Hopefully, none of us think that. We need to remember that conviction from the Holy Spirit is a good thing. We need it. We need the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin, to lead us in the path of re repentance, to enjoy the freedom that is ours in Christ. At the same time, we need to differentiate between conviction and condemnation. For in Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation. We welcome conviction. We need conviction. Conviction is a good thing. We should be grieved by our sin. We should recognize that our sin grieves the Holy Spirit. And therefore, we ought to desire the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin. While at the same time, not moving into a place of condemnation. There's not condemnation in Christ, but there is conviction of sin through the Holy Spirit. So I suspect that as we think about self-control, there will be a lot of conviction in this room, which is a good thing. By the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm praying that the Lord will use our time in the Word this morning to produce in us a much greater degree of self-control. And as with every piece of the fruit of the Spirit, we need to remember our motivation for pursuing growth. Our motivation is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are motivated to grow 
because of his love for us, because he has saved us, because he has called us his own. We belong to him. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. We are secure in him. Because we have been saved, because we receive his love, because we are secure in him, we are free and motivated to grow in Christ. If you are not a Christian, we are so glad that you are here, and you are always welcome here. The last thing we want is for you to walk away from this place today thinking that, oh, I just need to grow in self-control. Or, oh, Christians are those who practice (laughs) self-control. No, our hope and our desire for you, if you're not a Christian, is that you would recognize your need for a Savior whose name is Jesus. You see, what unites us, what binds us together in this room is the gospel of Christ, the good news that God saves sinners like all of us in Christ Jesus. We recognize that every single one of us is guilty of sinning against God, disobeying his commands, living in a way that's contrary to his will, going our own way. You see, we all recognize and understand that we are, we're all guilty. We're all guilty sinners. We've all sinned against God. We're all deserving of his judgment. But God is merciful, and in his kindness, he has provided a way for us to escape the judgment we deserve and instead be reconciled to him, receiving the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of eternal life. He has provided a way by sending Jesus Christ into the world, the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Jesus came into the world and lived a life without sin. He died upon the cross to take the punishment of the sins of his people. He died in our place. After he was buried, he rose from the grave, conquering death. And he ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again. There will be a day of final judgment. And our hope, our confidence to stand on the day of final judgment is in Jesus Christ. Not in our own ability to obey the law. Not in our ability to practice self-control. Our hope, our confidence is in Christ. We have believed in him. He is the one who has saved us. So if you're not a Christian, our hope for you is that you too would believe in Christ and be saved. If you hear nothing else this morning, we hope that you hear that. There is life in Christ. There is forgiveness in Christ. There is restoration in Christ Jesus. For those of us who have believed, we recognize that we are called and commanded to grow as those who have been saved, as those who have been justified, we are now called, commanded to grow in Christ, to mature in the faith. As we have seen in the book of Galatians, we are not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Christ. And therefore, we do not pursue self-control to justify ourselves, but because we have been justified. So with that in mind, we are going to look to God's word to understand and grow in self-control. I'm going to begin by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 24 through 27. Again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 24 through 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. 
Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I love the illustration of runners competing in a race. I grew up watching my siblings compete in track and cross country. I loved watching them compete. I loved watching runners run. And then I participated in track and cross country and I enjoyed it. And I love watching the Olympics. I love watching runners compete and run and strive to go as fast as they can go, to push themselves as hard as they can. The world record holder for the marathon is Ilyud Kipchoge from Kenya. Now, I have never run anything even close to a marathon, so I'm always astonished when I see people running marathons. It blows my mind. And his record in marathon competitions is amazing. He has won 13 major marathons, and he has only competed in two that he didn't win. His world record is two hours, one minute, and 39 seconds, which means he averaged four minutes and 38 seconds per mile. And here is how he described the marathon race. In the marathon, the first half is just a normal run. Oh, that's good to know. <laughs> first half is just a normal run. <laughs> so that 15 kilometers, 20 kilometers, everybody is still going to be there. Where the marathon starts is after 30 kilometers, which is just over 18 miles. He says, that's where you feel pain everywhere in your body. Oh, is that when it begins? At 18 miles. <laughs> that's where you feel pain everywhere in your body. The muscles are really aching, and only the most prepared and well-organized athlete is going to do well after that. He says, I'll go with the pace. But after 30 kilometers, I'll change to my own pace. And if you're ready to follow me, then we can go together. I wonder, who's his audience? <laughs> to whom is he speaking? Unless he's having a really bad day, no one can go at that pace. No one on planet Earth. But I love the way he describes the marathon. I love the way he describes the pain. He's ex the pain that you experience as a runner when you're pushing, when you're striving to win the race. He says, you can only do that. You can only endure. You can only succeed if you're prepared, if you're disciplined. You can only endure the pain if you're ready. He understands what it means to run to receive the prize. Paul used the example of runners competing in a race because we all understand that a runner must exercise a lot of self-control if he or she will win. Runners must exercise self-control in all things. They must exercise self-control in what they eat. They have incredibly strict and rigid diets. They're not allowed to eat Chick-fil-A. So right there, I'm out. <laughs> they have to exercise self-control in regards to sleeping. They have to get the right amount of sleep. They have to exercise self-control in regards to training. They can't just have those days where they're like, yeah, I don't feel like it. That's not an option. 
They have to exercise self-control even in the little things, like stretching. They have to do these things. They have to have self-control and be disciplined. They have to consistently say yes to the things that you don't want to do and no to the things that you do want to do. The best runners devote themselves to winning a prize. They understand the goal and they orient their lives around pursuing this goal. And what kind of prize does such devotion earn them? A prize that perishes. One that does not last. It fades. The applause of the crowd fades. People forget their names. The happiness that comes with winning the prize goes away. And if you're a Seahawks fan, you know what I'm talking about. Think about this. Do you remember how happy you were when the Seahawks won the Super Bowl? I remember. I remember that day. I remember the following week. I was very happy. I was so happy that our team won the prize, won the championship. But if you're a Seahawks fan, how happy were you one year later when Russell Wilson threw an interception at the goal line to seal the Super Bowl victory for the New England Patriots? You weren't very happy. You didn't say, oh, but we won it last year. I'm still happy and feel good about it. No, who cares about last year? We just lost the Super Bowl. The joy, the happiness fades. It does not last. It is a reward that perishes. Athletes devote themselves to winning, exercising tremendous self-control for a prize that perishes. And Paul said, we who are followers of Jesus have a far greater reason to exercise self-control. We look forward to an eternal reward. We will receive a crown that will last forever. We will receive a glorious inheritance that never fades. If athletes are willing to exercise tremendous self-control for a prize that perishes, how much more so ought we to exercise self-control in light of the inheritance and the prize that we are looking forward to? Leon Morris writes, the strenuous self-denial of the athlete as he sought a fleeting reward is a rebuke to half-hearted, flabby Christian service. The athlete denies himself many lawful pleasures, and the Christian must similarly avoid not only definite sin, but anything that hinders spiritual progress. Sometimes we need comfort. Sometimes we need encouragement. Sometimes we need a rebuke. As Leon Morris has stated, the verses in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, and 27 probably serve as a rebuke for the times when we half-heartedly follow Christ, when we fail to exercise discipline and self-control as we walk with Christ and participate in his work. So what was the example that Paul provided? He said, I don't run aimlessly. I don't flail around boxing the air. I don't live without purpose, without focus, without direction, without discipline. No, he said, 
I discipline my body and keep it under control. Discipline my body and keep it under control in light of the fact that we belong to Christ. In light of the eternal prize and reward that awaits us, we too are called to be disciplined, keep ourselves under control. So how do we apply this to our lives? How do we practice self-control? Well, first of all, there is the general sense that we need self-control to grow in godliness. 1 Timothy 4, 7, and 8, Paul wrote, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Godliness does not come through passivity. We do not meander or stumble our way into godliness. And once again, he employed the language of training. Train yourself for godliness. He said bodily training is of some value. There is some benefit. There is some benefit and reward for bodily training, for exercising, for taking care of your body. There are good things that come from it. There's some value in that. But he's saying, but as valuable as bodily training is, training for godliness is far more valuable and far more important. Now, when I think of self-control, the first place my mind goes is refraining from doing that which is sin. Refraining from that, from doing that which is wrong or unhelpful. I think about refraining. It's the first place my mind goes. But what we see in Scripture is that self-control is not only about refraining from doing the wrong things. It most certainly is about that. But it's not only about that. Self-control is not only about refraining from doing the wrong things but also consistently doing the right things. Controlling yourself involves training yourself to do the right things. For a runner, self-control involves consistently doing the right things, saying yes to the things that they don't really want to do. Self-control involves disciplining yourself to read the scriptures, to seek the Lord in prayer, to spend time with other believers, to gather faithfully with the church body, to serve others and meet their needs. We might refer to these as the spiritual disciplines. Self-control means you control yourself to practice these things that God has given us, these ways, these means of growth. We demonstrate self-control by actively training ourselves for godliness through practicing the spiritual disciplines. David Mathis refers to the spiritual disciplines as habits of grace. And he writes, The grace of God is gloriously beyond our skill and technique. The means of grace are not about earning God's favor, twisting his arm, or controlling his blessing, but readying ourselves for consistent saturation in the role of his tides. It is in this endless sea of his grace that we walk the path of the Christian life and take steps of grace-empowered effort and initiative. It works something like this. I can flip a switch, but I don't provide the electricity. I turn on a faucet, but I don't make the water flow. 
there will be no light and no liquid refreshment without someone else providing it. And so it is for the Christian with the ongoing grace of God. His grace is essential for our spiritual lives, but we don't control the supply. We can't make the favor of God flow, but he has given us circuits to connect and pipes to open expectantly. There are paths along which he has promised his favor. Our God is lavish in his grace. He is free to liberally dispense his goodness without even the least bit of cooperation and preparation on our part. And he often does. But he also has his regular channels. And we can routinely avail ourselves of these revealed paths of blessing or neglect them to our detriment. See, the spiritual disciplines, or as David Mathis calls them, the habits of grace are the means by which we grow in Christ, mature in the faith, enjoy God's grace. And so we need to train ourselves. We need to practice self-control by practicing these means of grace that God has given us. How is your self-control in regards to reading the word, spending time in prayer, spending time with other believers, serving others even when you don't feel like it? That is a way we need to grow in the area of self-control. We also need to grow in self-control by refraining from indulging our sinful desires or gratifying the flesh. One of the ways we see this addressed repeatedly in Scripture is regarding sex and the problem of sexual immorality. Brothers and sisters, we need to be careful that we do not become comfortable with the world's attitudes, beliefs, and practices regarding sex. We live in a culture whereby sexual immorality has not merely become normalized, but even celebrated. We need to understand that God is the author of sex, and sex is a good gift given by God to be enjoyed in the way he designed. God designed sex to be enjoyed in the context of a covenant marriage between a man and a woman. Sexual immorality, on the other hand, is pursuing sex outside of God's good design. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, Paul listed the works of the flesh, and the first one he mentioned was sexual immorality. So we need to differentiate between God's design for sex and sexual immorality, as we see done in Scripture. We see this, for example, in Proverbs chapter 5. In Proverbs chapter 5, the son is warned against the sin of pursuing sex with a woman other than his wife while being encouraged to enjoy sexual intimacy with his wife. In Proverbs chapter 5, verses 15 through 23, we read this. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for a lack of discipline, Because of his great folly, he is led astray. So we see the contrast here 
in Proverbs chapter 5 of understanding God's good design for sex and enjoying it in the right context versus pursuing sex in a way that is sinful. That's a sin against God's good design and purpose. And so what we see is that as followers of Christ, we are called to refrain from all sexual activity outside of marriage. Where sex outside of marriage has become normalized in our culture, we recognize that as followers of Christ, we are called to a different and contrary sexual ethic. And so we want to recognize that. Pursue what's honoring to Christ and exercise self-control in regards to this matter. Jesus even calls us to exercise, exercise self-control rather than indulge sexually immoral thoughts. He impressed this point in his Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30, he said, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than, than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. As his followers, Jesus calls us to fight sin. And he calls us to guard diligently against lust. Brothers and sisters, we are all sexual sinners. And we are all in need of God's grace for the forgiveness of our sins. And we are all in need of God's spirit to fight sin. But make no mistake, we are called to take sin seriously and fight sin diligently. Christ calls us to fight sin diligently. Not only our external actions, but even the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts. To be careful that we don't indulge a sinful thought. To be careful that we don't allow sinful looks. We need to exercise self-control in what we think and what we see. We need to guard ourselves against looking at images that cause us to sin, that are sins against the Lord. And we need his help to do so. And God gives us his help. He gives us self-control so that we can fight sin as he calls us to fight sin. We don't want to make peace with our sin. We don't want to be comfortable with sin. We want to fight sin, recognizing that God is gracious and that God is merciful, that we're all sinners. We're all in need of his grace. We're all in need of his help. We want to be able to fight sin together. Another important way we are called to exercise self-control is regarding our words. The Lord warns us in the book of James regarding the dangers of how we use our words. In James 3, 7, and 8, we read, For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. No human being can tame the tongue, which speaks to our need for the Holy Spirit. We can't tame our tongue. We need the Holy Spirit to help us with our words. We need the Holy Spirit to help us exercise self-control in what we say. The book of Proverbs commends to us the use of self-control with words. 
In Proverbs 10:19, we read, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. In Proverbs 21, 23, it says, whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. We see that self-control with our words produces righteousness. But a lack of self-control in regard to our words leads to a great amount of harm and trouble. And so we need the Holy Spirit to help us exercise self-control with our words. And there are many other areas of life where we need self-control. Consider the, consider the subjects of alcohol and food. We can enjoy food and even alcohol for the glory of God. But we can also abuse these things with excess. The Bible calls gluttony and drunkenness sin. So we need to recognize that we need to enjoy God's good gifts without sinning. So for all of us, we need self-control in these things. And self-control will look differently for some people. In regards to alcohol, self-control will mean completely refraining from drinking it at all. And for many people, that's wise. But for some, it's just accountability, making sure you're not abusing the good gifts that God has given what about how you use your time? We are called to exercise self-control with our time. In his word, God calls us to make the best use of our time. Does your life reflect self-control and how you steward your time? In what ways are you lacking self-control? The big challenge for us today is how much time we give to social media, news media, entertainment media. How much time do you give to these things? What about with money? We are called to be self-controlled with our money, to be wise with the money that God has given us that we might steward it for his glory. We need the Holy Spirit to give us self-control so that we do not use our money foolishly but rather in a way that is good and right and pleasing in his eyes. In all these things, we are called to refrain from sin and practice righteousness. In all these things, we fall short. <laughs> in all these things, we need God's help. And God does give us help. He gives us the helper, the Holy Spirit. Our motivation to grow in self-control is not to justify ourselves before the Lord or to convince others that we are more righteous than we are. We do need to guard against self-righteousness, and we do need to guard against hypocrisy. At the same time, we recognize that we have a wonderful motivation to pursue growth. That is because God has saved us, because he has loved us, because he has restored us to himself, because he has given us a future with him and his kingdom, and therefore we grow for his glory. We pursue growth in self-control, knowing that God will be glorified in this. And we also know that growing in self-control is not actually restrictive. It's actually liberating. 
growing in self-control is a means by which we actually enjoy God and His good design and purposes for our lives. We need to understand that self-control is a good thing. It is desirable. It produces many other benefits in our lives, and most importantly, it brings glory to God. Well, at the beginning, we saw the weight of the problem of lacking self-control, as well as the value of practicing self-control. So, brothers and sisters, we want to grow in self-control in every area of our lives. I think we can all acknowledge and confess that we need to grow in self-control in many areas of our lives. So as we come to the end of our series on the fruit of the Spirit, I hope we will reflect on these things regularly. I hope we will reflect on the fruit of the Spirit regularly and how the Lord wants to grow us in these things. I hope we will take time to meditate and examine our own hearts. I don't know about you, but when I read the fruit of the Spirit, I think, yes, those things are good. But when I actually go to study them in depth, I have conviction. Like, oh, I'm actually failing in this way. Oh, I definitely need to grow in this area. And that is a good thing. And so I hope that we will reflect on the fruit of the Spirit. I hope we will meditate on the fruit of the Spirit. I hope we will see that God desires us to grow in these things for the good of the church and for his glory. As we grow in the fruit of the Spirit, we will serve others better. We will encourage others. We will build them up in their faith. The church will be healthier and God will be glorified and we will be a faithful gospel witness in this community and beyond. Let's pray and work together to that end. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for our time in your word. We thank you for this study on the fruit of the Spirit. We thank you that you give us the Holy Spirit generously. We thank you that the Holy Spirit is at work in us. We pray, Lord, that we will be those who walk according to your Spirit rather than gratifying the desires of the flesh. We pray that the fruit of the Spirit will become increasingly evident in our lives, in our church, that we might serve one another well, that we might glorify you, that we might be a faithful witness. We thank you for this, Lord, and we do pray all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.